Hello and welcome to SAE Tomorrow Today. I'm your host, Grayson Brulte. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to have Eric Howden, race engineer, Chimpanzee Racing. On today's episode, Eric and I discussed how you prepare a driver for a race and the innovations that are developed on a racetrack that make their way into production vehicles. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Eric. Hi, thanks. Nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you, and thank you for coming here because racing is cool. I'm fascinated <laughs> by the sport, but more importantly, innovations are born on the racetrack. The, the breakthroughs that have occurred there with regenerative braking, and we can go down the list of what's happened there. In your opinion, what are some of the most important breakthroughs that were incubated on the racetrack? Yeah, so over the years, I've seen a lot of things that we've developed or first shown up on the racetrack kind of kind of land on uh, the production car side. One thing that, that stands out in my mind, years and years ago, we were saving fuel under uh, yellow flag con- uh, caution conditions by shutting cylinders off. They were actually running a V8 as a V6 or less. So a few years after that, I, I was driving a, a rental minivan, a Honda, and suddenly it, it's idling on four cylinders. And I thought, well, <laughs> that's cool. I've seen that somewhere before. <laughs> but, you know, there's, there's things like that that the manufacturers use to sort of develop their technologies for their production vehicles. But some of the most important things that I've seen change over the years is actually on the safety side. Obviously, you go back to the the 50s and 60s, racing wasn't the most uh, safe sport. Now, I think it's it's evolved to the point where it's not it's not by all means safe, but it's become safer. You know, in our series, we've we've seen the innovations of the the safer barrier, the softer wall that's been installed in all the tracks that we race at now. Rather than hitting concrete, um, there's an energy absorption that happens to help dissipate energy. Um, and then most recently for our series is the, the uh, aero screen. So we actually have an enclosed cockpit with a, almost a fighter jet canopy. So that's protecting the drivers from debris, other cars flying through the air. You know, it's, it's become, a, uh, I think, an innovative sport that's pushed safety. And unfortunately, those, those, those things are a result of things that have happened in the past. You know, you never you never think about things. Certainly, we tried to, but we don't always until you react to something that's happened. So, it's great to see that the sport get to that level. Have some of from racing to production cars around? If you watch a race and unfortunately, if a driver hits a wall, the car beautifully breaks away. Is it to, is that to lessen the impact on the driver? There is that how that was developed from a safety perspective? Yeah, correct. Um, the the worst thing that can happen is all of the energy of the impact is transferred to the driver. So if you take it from the car design, we have crash structures that are designed around the the main chassis or the monocoque that is the primary protection for the driver. But before he even gets to that point, there's a lot of structures around that absorb that impact and lessen the energy that's transferred to the driver. Is that why you're seeing less fatal crashes today than you were, say, 10, 15, 20 years ago, where you would, I mean, I'm going to 
you turn on ESPN when it was on Channel 6, and unfortunately you see one of those horrific incidents, and now today you see a crash, you're like, uh-oh, but then you're very lucky that the driver gets up and is able to walk away. Yeah, yeah, I think, again, we don't always learn from forethought. We actually sometimes have to learn the hard way. A lot of the things that we do and the way things are operated are because of, you know, un- unfortunately I've been at the racetrack too many times where, you know, we've lost friends and competitors and it's it really brings everything back to earth though. You forget about the competition side and it's like, how do we make sure that this never happens again? You have this deep experience being at the racetrack and I want to point out in 2013, you were part of the team that won the Indianapolis 500. I repeat, the Indianapolis 500. Way to go, Eric. What was that experience like? So the, the, the thing that stands out in my mind the most immediately after winning that race was just relief. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you have, to, you have to try to explain to people that we work all year round to prepare for that one race. Um, qualifying for the Indianapolis 500 is the single most stressful day of the entire year. And when you explain that, try to explain that, then you know it's, it's kind of puts it in context. But there's such a buildup to that, that race and the importance is so high and the prestige is, is you know, world renowned. So, you know, that that kind of puts it all into the context of where you're just, oh, finally, <laughs> finally you got it done. You know, that, that day, honestly, it, it has to be a perfect day. You know, everything has to go your way. And there's, it's what makes it so difficult to win. What is it like? You're coming on the home stretch. You got 20 laps to go. You're in the lead. Are you on pins and needles? Please, laps magically evaporate so we can bring this home. It's this, the <laughs> the longest period of time. Yeah, it 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 in some ways it flies by because you your mind just kind of compresses it all. But yeah, you're hardly breathing. You, you're like, okay, <laughs> just one more lap. Here we go, <laughs> and then it's one more lap. So, just dark out of your head we can do this, we can do this. Like, Does it start yeah. to go through your head if we run the, execute this perfectly, we're going to win the Indy? I'm not, a, I'm not a superstitious person, but I try not to let those thoughts go through my head because the minute you relax, something you're not going to be able to react to something that happens. You know, for, for my role in the timing stand during the race, you know, everything is in front of me from you know, telemetry to race strategy to, uh, you know, monitoring the, the setup of the car where the driver has all of his adjustments. And, you know, at, at any point you might be, you might see something or think of something that could make a difference. So you're just, you're always on edge and that stress level is kind of, kind of peaked for about four hours. Are you relaying what you see to the, to the driver to help the driver make adjustments? Yeah, yeah. Often that works too, you know, through the races. A lot of time we just talk to them under caution periods. Um, Obviously, they're pretty busy under normal circumstances of racing, but there's always information that you're going to be able to relay to them sort of in process of, of, you know, trying to pass somebody or 
plan to the next pit stop, fuel strategy. So there's always a flow of information to the car. Is the is the pit strategy one of the most crucial elements in order to take to winning? <sighs> Particularly the Indy 500, and it's it's tough to it's tough to again kind of put it into context, but it's so difficult to pass. It is actually a track position race. And by me, what I mean is if you can start up front and you have a clean day, you're going to stay up front until that last 20 laps. You know, if you have a problem in the pits or you have a problem on the track, a tire that goes down, you're going to have to pit when you don't want to, and you're going to go all the way to the back of the line. And the turbulence and <laughs> the traffic situations back there, it, it's really, really tough. To get back through the field, is it's, it's next to impossible. So track position is everything to win the Indy 500. To get through the field, is that where the, the driver's skills really come into play of navigating that tight path? Yeah, it is. And that's when, you know, you've got – You've got to adjust your mindset to running up front is a completely different mindset. You know, you're looking at the guys that you're racing with, the fuel strategy is to stay out front and not have to pit early. The guy that is actually leading the race is breaking the, breaking the draft for everybody behind him. You'll probably have to pit at least one or two laps earlier. So if you're leading, your pit strategy is, is compromised. But... Like I said, when you get back in the back, you really don't want to get back too far because it's difficult to get back to the front. From an engineering perspective, so you have the driver skill on one hand and then you have the engineering skill. What has to be done from an engineering perspective in order to win the race? <sighs> Everything. <laughs> There's so many factors that have to be optimized. You know, just from an engine standpoint, we have to... Uh, adjust the, the cooling, the airflow through the side pods. The engine has to operate, engine and gearbox all have to operate at a very specific temperature range. You know, they don't have any other way of, of controlling that other than controlling the amount of air that goes through it. So, you know, we, we have to adjust that. Once it's fixed, it's fixed. If you miss that, you're in big trouble because you can't adjust it during the race. From gearing, you know, obviously <laughs> we adjust the gears in 60 80 rpm increments and you know they actually that makes a difference um, the engines are you know there's a lot of horsepower there but depending on the ambient conditions and the actual tuning of the engine that peak power could be you know two or three hundred rpm either way so your gearing has to be spot on it's never going to be right for all conditions but we always try to gear for the end of the race because that's when it matters. You know, tires, tire pressure, <laughs> aero balance. We can adjust front and rear wings during the race. So, you know, it's there's a, a lot of adjustability in the car, but it's like having too many toys. Sometimes you have a mess all over the floor, you got to pick them up. <laughs> to adjust the wings, is that a is that a pit stop or is that remote controlled? No, it's it's during during a pit stop. The mechanics, uh, when they change the tire, we can have uh, six people over the wall. Basically, when the guys have done changing the tire, they can adjust, uh, manually adjust the, the wings. When you're, when you're gathering all this data, is that all sensors? As the, You're getting all that data in real time through sensors that are on the vehicle? Yeah, we, we have 
a lot of a lot of telemetry data streaming at us. Um, we try to simplify it down to some basic parameters that we monitor lap to lap. The arrow balancer center pressure is is one of those that we look at really almost constantly. And tire pressures are another that are streamed at us real time. The temperatures that I mentioned, some of the, the critical functional temperatures, sort of the health of the car, the gearbox, um, all that stuff is monitored. If you go in the Wayback Machine, what advantage, without what happens without sensors today? Are you, are you running at the peak speeds and operations you are currently able to? Yeah, so going back, again, dating myself, back at the beginning, we, we didn't have this level of telemetry. This data just wasn't available. In some cases, ignorance is bliss. You didn't know what you didn't know. If the tire pressures were too high, the driver would be, you're basically tuning off of what the driver's telling you. Um, making relative changes, you know, the, you can get data from the driver themselves. They always had some sort of display dash temperatures or critical functions like that. But all in all, you filled it up and hopefully you had enough gas and you <laughs> off you went. Come in when the, uh, when the thing coughs. <laughs> I want to stand in the way back machine here for a moment because by training, you're an aerospace engineer. Yeah. Has that given you a competitive advantage in your career? I think I personally, yes, I think so. You know, I, you can argue that all day with the different de uh, <laughs> degree disciplines, of course. Back when I was <clears throat> in school, there wasn't, you know, now there's specific motorsports degree programs. There was nothing like that. You know, nobody even thought about that when I was um, coming through school. But I think what it has done for me is given me sort of this overview of aerodynamics, mechanical, uh, structural dynamics, everything's kind of, when I was in school, it was geared towards airplanes, stress load calculations for wings, stuff like that. But all of that stuff translates, you know, and early days of racing, a lot of that technology from aircraft construction made its way into racing. You know, I think I think just it's that natural sort of connection between the two disciplines. Without aerodynamics, your vehicles would not run nearly as fast as they do. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> that's uh, uh, you talk about a, a training a NASCAR driver to be an IndyCar driver. That's the one thing that that it's tough to get his right foot to believe his brain. If you go through this corner faster, you'll have more grip because there'll be more downforce. That doesn't, that just doesn't naturally compute. <laughs> what has it been like with, we were on Jimmy Johnson's team, he's transitioning, he had this incredible run at NASCAR, world renowned run, a matter of fact, at NASCAR. Yeah. Now he's going into IndyCar. Is that going through the driver's license test all over again, or what has that transition been like? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, been a, it's been a really fascinating journey. So shortly after Jimmy joined the team, my first time, you know, we spoke on the phone a couple times, but shortly after that, we actually met in person at uh, Barber Motorsports Park. And this was November-ish, I think. So it was kind of cold, but Jimmy was driving a, an F3 car, which 
you know, smaller horsepower, smaller car. But it, the fundamentals of an open wheel car with some aerodynamic force is basically just let's let's get started somewhere. Start working on the just the basic driving techniques. Get a, getting a feel for the braking techniques are probably the biggest departure from NASCAR that he had to learn. But <laughs> here's a seven time NASCAR champion uh, getting driving tips from a 16 year old. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're we're a couple. He's not old, but uh, you know, we're hanging out with the the kids at the at the racetrack, and you know, these kids are going out and setting a lap time, and we're analyzing the data, and he's getting in and driving and trying to match the driving techniques, and you know, it it literally started from from that basic ground level. It made it must have made those kids days, and when they realized who, who Jimmy was. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Some of them were so young, they're probably like, who's this old guy? <laughs> Jimmy who? <laughs> it's just somebody that wants to learn a new skill. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's like Michael Jordan going to play baseball. Yeah. I, I remember that. That, that when, when Jordan played baseball was was an interesting scenario. He had to learn a new sport. Is it so? We, we're, we you have the little kids, or are beating Jimmy Johnson on track. Is that how difficult it is to transition from NASCAR to IndyCar? It is difficult, and he would be the first to admit it's it's probably more more than he reckoned. The thing about him, he's he's incredibly motivated. Um, his reasons for doing this are, uh, you know, really sort of admirable because there's no. He's not like, I'm Jimmy Johnson, I'm going to come in and I'm going to just crush everybody. He's like, it, he's humble and he learns from anyone and everyone he can about how to, you know, how to do this. Because the cars, yeah, they're race cars, but the driving techniques and, and the way that, that you have to approach driving on a road course with an Indy car is night and day different than the NASCAR. You know, everything that we do is compressed in a, a quarter of the time braking turning accelerating all of that is so much more of a compressed event that getting the techniques right within that short amount of time it's it's very difficult and you know all credit to him He's he's done an amazing job of putting that together. Like I said, he's he's an incredible student. I think if he'd put his mind to anything, he could have accomplished it. It's just that level of work ethic and commitment. It's clear throughout his career he has a gift for driving. He has a gift for racing. He's one of the best race car drivers there was and one of the best race car drivers living. But the race engineer plays an extremely important role because it's been said that the relationship between a race driver and the engineer is one of the most important on a racing team. Could you shed some light on that, please? Yeah, sure. So I think where that comes from is you've got all of this data, this very technologically advanced car, and all of this information coming at you, but you have to make a package that the driver sitting in it can get the best out of all the situations that, that you're going to come up against. So depending on what the track is, you've got to give the driver 
confidence in and not just the the best theoretical setup it has to be adapted so they are feeling that what they want to feel they're getting the sensations that that they key off of that they're going to take that you know equipment and get the best out of the driver and the car together and you know that's that's where the communication part comes in and i think that's why there's so much emphasis on that relationship or that communication line. But you have the trust, as you described it earlier, with going on the track, it seems like you're building that trust and you're building that bond. Does trust play a really critical role in that, especially as you go to race day? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll take qualifying in Indianapolis as, a, as the example. He's got to trust that not just we, but everybody that's touched that car has done their job and done it well. He's going to go barreling into turn one at India at 241 miles an hour and not lift. And that's his job. But for him to have the confidence to do that, he has to trust that we've done our job. We're there, we're there on race day. You're there with Jimmy. How do you prepare him for a race? Is it, give me, I'm a, I'm a diehard baseball fan and you don't talk to the pitcher because the pitcher gets in his mindset. You don't want to interrupt the mojo going on. Is that the same in racing? Say, okay, Jimmy, you got your mojo going on, or do you go through a whole briefing period? We actually have meetings um, just on a normal race weekend. We actually have race meetings probably within the hour to the start of the race. You know, final preparations, sort of going over. All four teams are reviewing their strategy because everybody's going to have a different approach to the race, depending on where they're starting or, or their strategy. But these guys are bombarded with sponsor commitments and the fans and, you know, not having been in the NASCAR arena, you know, the the big thing about IndyCar is, is the fan accessibility. And that's part of, I think, where those guys have to, they don't necessarily get that mental break to where they can focus. They just kind of have to put the helmet on, put the visor down and just get on with it. You know, that's that's their couple minutes on the grid before the start of the race. I think that's their that's their focus time. Everything else is it's like I said they're pretty bombarded. Wow. That that's a whole skill into itself just oh, not to get distracted. For sure. Mental strength, you can't you can't uh, belittle the fact that these guys are mentally very tough very focused the the physical side is one thing you can prepare your your body you know to to drive these things and the, i think he'd be the first to admit he's completely changed his workout routine to you know we're we're driving a 2000 pound car with 4000 pounds of downforce and no power steering you know it's <laughs> it's very physical but the the mental side for him and his experience level and all of his success, I think that's probably one of the biggest advantages that he's carried into our sport from NASCAR. That's very positive. You're in the NASCAR circuit, he knows all the tracks where he's going to race, probably like the back of his hand. Now he's transitioning to IndyCar. Do you use simulation to take him to the different courses and, and point out different scenarios? On this turn, you're going to want to bank a little bit sharper, a little bit higher. So what, what our normal 
routine would be is most of the drivers have their own at-home static simulators. And when I say static, I mean just it's a visual rather than full motion. Those guys will do whatever platform they choose, whether it's R-Factor Pro, iRacing, what, whatever is the best sort of setup that works for them. So just to do some preparation, learning the track, gearing, just get in the flow of it. But working with uh, the engine manufacturers, you know, through my career, both Chevy and Honda, they both have their proprietary in-house uh, full motion simulation rigs. So if you think, think of a Boeing flight school, the full motion simulators that the pilots train on, it's very much the same thing, except that they're specifically built, the, the mechanicals, and then the proprietary software that drive them are all built off of the vehicle dynamic model for whatever race car that they're simulating. Have you seen a improvement in drivers when they're using simulation in their downtime or when they have a little bit of off time from not from their commitments? Yeah, it... Um, it's gotten to the level and I, you know, it, everything always progresses and always gets better. Every tool has its limitations, but it's gotten to the point where we will go and do a three hour simulator session at the HPD rig. And then to me as an engineer, we're actually getting to make wholesale changes, bigger changes that we would be able to do at the racetrack because of time limitations. In a couple keystrokes, I can change wheelbase, I can change the diff, I can change all four springs, whatever I want. Essentially, it's just a file to load. That might be three hours of work at a racetrack. So when we show up, the drivers are familiar with the circuit, familiar with the, the visual cues, you know, some of the specifics of the track geometry that they have to sort of pay attention to to get the best lap time. But as an engineer, we're refining, I call it the top of the funnel to the bottom of the funnel. We've taken all these ideas and all of these things that have come through previous experience, simulation, and we've distilled that down to three or four options that we're going to take to the racetrack and evaluate in real time. You know, that, to me, that's the key of the, uh, where simulation is now, but it's it's getting better and better all the time. That's another transition from production cars use simulation, which as we go towards autonomous vehicle simulation plays a key role in that. And you can make the argument that great simulation was born on the track. You have the Forenza one on the on the PS5, which is fun to play. I don't have a rig like that. It's got a little joystick, but it's still <laughs> it's still it's still fun to play. Sure, sure. Yeah, and you know the even the the at home simulation is getting better. If money were no object, you know, there's there's uh, uh, six degree of freedom full motion simulator rigs for your home that you can buy. They're going to come with a six figure price tag, but it depends on you know if you're you know Scott Dixon or Jimmy Johnson, or, you know maybe that's something that you're going to consider. Well, the one thing you could definitely have if that shows up in your house, you have your wife asking questions and you have a giant <laughs> smile on your face. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Why are you disappearing into the garage for six hours at a time? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, it gives a whole new meaning to a man cave. <laughs> <laughs> right. With, without racing, 
where would we be in your opinion as it relates to automotive technology? Because you've laid out clear examples and there's thousands of more examples that we can add. It seems that we wouldn't nearly be as far as we are today if it wasn't for racing. I think, well, so again, going back to, you know, our, our, the best partners we have in racing are, are, well, first our sponsors, because one of the things I learned very early on in racing is we do this with other people's money. So, you know, you have to be thankful for that. But our engine partners are, have been huge technology partners through the development of racing since I've been doing this for 20 plus years. What those guys have learned is that the development cycle in racing is so compressed and so high speed. They use racing as a training ground for their production car people. They'll come in, bring someone into a racing environment, and in three or four months, those guys have the experience level that they may have gotten in three years of doing production car. So that that sort of rapid development cycle is something that I think has helped move automotive technology, but it's also... <laughs> Competition as a hell of a way of making people become very clever. You know, you, you set a bunch of alpha personalities in a room with a blank sheet of paper and throw a problem in there. You know, it's it's going to something's going to come out of there and it's probably going to be pretty creative. It's some it's something special. Let's think about it. It's going to enhance the sport, which from the sponsorship standpoint, it's going to drive more ticket sales. It's going to drive more merchandise sales sure. to keep the economic engine uh, moving and when, when you pack the Indy 500, Mr. Penske is going to be over the moon. I saw the photo for the first time since he's taken ownership where it was sold out. He said, "Yes, yes, yes," and that was a wonderful yeah. smile on his face. Yeah, yeah, it was great to see all the fans back at the 500 this year. You know, that was probably one of the oddest days in 2020 when we had to race with no fans. It was really kind of a surreal situation. So it was fantastic to walk out and see those, you know, 325 plus thousand fans to in the stands this year. I'm going to go in the, in the way back history machine. Carl Fisher was the founder <laughs> of uh, the Indianapolis 500. And what would he stay looking there for 325,000 fans when Carl Fisher went on that from his, he went from his used car dealerships to the car dealerships to the Indy, sold the Indy, built Miami Beach. And at that time, Miami Beach did not have 325,000 people. So if Mr. Fisher's looking down, imagine the, the look on his face. Yeah, I, I think in, uh, it's been an incredible sort of progression of the sport and it's all you know to to roger's credit he's put the emphasis on that race and then everything else sort of benefits and uh from the success of of the indianapolis 500 and i think that's always been sort of the indycar model you know it's it's the one race that regardless of whether you watch any other race during the year sometimes that might be the only race that people watch. You know? It's a brand. But, yeah. But if that is like, oh, wow, so these guys are doing this again next week? Well, maybe I'll, I'll check that out. You know, that, and, you know, I can't state enough how important the younger generation is because, you know, the, we're not getting any younger. <laughs> we we have to keep that, that passion uh, for the sport 
and and that basically grows from from the younger kids up that are just like wow this stuff is really cool i don't know what it is but i want to find out more about it and before you know it you're going to have your netflix moment where you're going to have an indie car series then your ratings will go <laughs> through the roof as well <laughs> yeah yeah i think that would be fantastic like i said more the more exposure the more people find out really how the the personalities behind it but the the competitive level and you know the intensity of the sport i i think there would be more and more interest in just again finding out more if if you sort of open that floodgate for sure the the floodgate it opens with with formula sae you can call it a training ground a lot of those individuals have gone on uh, to great careers from that program You've been involved with that program for a long time. How did you first become involved? <laughs> I told this story uh, a couple weeks ago, and, and I laugh every time I think about it. So I made the mistake of trying to do my master's degree in a year and <laughs> almost physically wrecked myself. So I backed off and took some summer classes, and, and I'm like, all right, I, I can't just sit in my apartment and study all the time. So I tried to pick up a hobby. And uh, Virginia Tech had a golf course, so I, I bought some cheap clubs, and I'm I'm whacking at weeds, and I'm like, this, this I don't think this is for me. <laughs> and off in the distance, I hear the the Formula SA car being tested um, on the airport uh, runway, and I'm like, well, I don't know what that is, but that's gonna make. <laughs> gonna make me a lot more interested in what's going on here so i literally tossed the bag of clubs in the weeds i hopped over the fence and went down there i said all right so how do i get involved <laughs> little to know i was the only graduate student that had any interest and because of my degree they're like oh well you can build the wings i'm like oh okay <laughs> that uh having no experience in you know any kind of composite or foam core uh cutting uh it, it was just it was awful it was awful <laughs> result but you know it was it was more about the the team camaraderie and and everybody that was there is there because they're passionate about motorsports you know that's it's above and beyond your coursework and I, I i'm not sure that you know necessarily people realize that that these are programs that people do because they love racing. They want to be involved and they want to learn more. So for me, anyone who's come through Formula SAE, that stands out on their resume because the one thing that you have to have in this business is passion, passion for racing. And, and it's too much work. If it's just a job, it's not gonna, you're not going to be happy with it. It has to be more than, than just a job. You, you clearly have the passion. I'm a diehard golfer. Well, you abandoned us. You went from slow to, to fast, but I'll forgive you for that one because I've enjoyed this conversation. When, when There's an individual that a resume comes on your desk and you see Formula SAE. Does that move it to the, the top of, I want to interview this person, I want to have a conversation? Then do you compare experiences, what they went through at Formula SAE compared to what you went through? Yeah, I think it's certainly, it, it's one of those things you want to find out more about what they did in the program, what you know, what projects they were involved. The more years that they spend in that, it, it to me again, it, it just shows that this is something that you actually want to do. 
it's something that that you really have a, a calling for and you know like i said it's it's important in the fact that racing is not a nine to five job it's a whatever it takes job you know our normal work days are eight to six eight to eight and that's just in the office you know it's even longer days at the racetrack so if you're not passionate about it then that's going to get to be like i said to a point where you're just like i don't know this is really isn't worth it for me so those people that have been through that program to me that shows that they've already got that willingness to go above and beyond because if it's a passion it's not a job you want to be there you'll sleep on the floor of the shop you don't care you want to get it done and that's how you win races it is it is (laughs) it's it's sort of uh it's sort of maybe blunt, but there's only so many hours between the last Indy 500 and the next Indy 500. And whoever works the hardest between that time comes up with the best ideas and implements them is going to win the next race. And it, it really comes down to that. At the headquarters, is there a, is there a countdown clock to, to the Indy? There, there is, actually. <laughs> we have a morning management meeting. And the notes come out every day, emailed out to the company. The the notes from that meeting, just from an organizational level. And up in up in the corner, it has a countdown days to the upcoming races. But then the five hundred is always on top. Wow! Like I said, it's that it's that important. Taking this one step further on the importance and the passion level, is there a dedicated team that's just focused on the five hundred year round? That is their primary focus. I wouldn't say that uh, there's a dedicated team. You know, one of one of the benefits of having a, a bigger organization, multiple programs, we, we have shared resources. I wouldn't say there's a dedicated team, but we have a development group and, you know, the brace engineers and the assistant engineers. We all sort of prioritize the 500 there's just a, a higher percentage of your personal and company-wide resources that are applied to, you know, winning that race. That honestly, that's if you didn't win it, you you can't wait till next year to get another shot. If you won it, then you're absolutely like, all right, what do I have to do to defend it? You know, it's it's that addictive. When you win it, do you even get 12 hours off, 24 hours off for the minute? You get the victory, do you start prepping for the next one? 12 hours is probably about right. 24 would be pushing it. This, you have to understand, we have to be racing in Detroit on the next Friday. So <laughs> there's there's a lot of tired people, but again, it's it's one of those whatever-it-takes jobs, and that's part of it. You know, it's, yes, again, the relief, the satisfaction, all of that that comes from from winning the 500 but then it's it's back to focusing on the rest of uh, the schedule because in our organization it's very clear it's stated repeatedly this team has two goals win the indianapolis 500 and win the championship it's we checked one box off this year and now you know you're immediately focused on checking the other one well with you on the team i i'm gonna say you have a pretty good shot of checking that other box off 
<laughs> honestly, I'm just I'm just one person in a really really well oiled machine. There's this is such a team sport, and I don't know that that gets emphasized enough. That you know, there's four cars, there's four uh, race engineers like myself. We all work together every day, sharing information, ideas, and and that spreads throughout the entire organization of you know the camaraderie the teamwork that's that's sort of the the core that makes a race team successful is is the ability to bring all those individuals together and focus them on one particular goal you have your goal you will achieve your goal and putting this conversation into context what is the future of racing in your opinion oh so we're headed into the hybrid era and i think the, the future of racing, I think it has to be, particularly for our sport of IndyCar, we have to be unique. And I think we do that in the fact that we have so many multiple disciplines that have to be mastered. Road courses, street courses, short ovals, super speedways. But for a driver, that's a huge challenge. For a team, that's a huge challenge. So we have to stay unique in that aspect. But I think in, in looking down the road, how, how racing for us particularly is going to be important is to be relevant. You know, relevant in the technologies that we're using to develop, you know, simulation, uh, rapid prototyping, CFD, all of these things that are going to, that are going to help us produce a better product on track but it's also relevant to the engine manufacturers and the people that buy that buy cars. We can't be, unfortunately, you know, the days of, of you know, twin turbo V8s, I think is behind us, you know, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> Some of us old people still, you know, revel in the glory days, but, you know, now we're moving into small displacement, hybrid systems, that regenerative technology, battery technology, you know, that's the future and that's what's relevant to the engine manufacturers and that's what people want to buy in their cars. There's a difference between the new the new Mercedes AMG line with the, you know, turbo car uh, turbo small displacement 48 volt hi, uh, uh, hybrid system. It's performance related directly from their F1 technology versus a, a, a Prius, you know, there's, there's a different mindset there. So, you know, racing technology has to apply to um, the people that are buying the cars. And I think that's where we're helping the manufacturers, you know, establish those, that technology to, to move, you know, racing and the, the industry together. Otherwise, you know, <laughs> If you're not relevant, if people aren't paying attention, you know, nobody's going to watch. Nobody's going to see the sponsors. And I think that's always going to be a struggle. Not struggle, but that's always has to be a focus for our series moving forward. That's where the fan experience comes in. A friend of mine went to the 500 this year and he said the fan experience was awesome. I said, how was it? Yeah. The fan experience was awesome. I said, okay, you're, you're, the sponsors <laughs> are going to be very happy to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and and that's going to get people to come back. 
uh, or that's going to get them to, you know, come to mid Ohio, um, you know, in, in the next month to, to check it out and see what a road course is like, you know, that that's important. And, and, you know, having, having been around, uh, Mr. Penske for a while, I, I think that's a, a very high priority for him is, is the fan experience, you know, to get people to come back, to make it a tradition. You know, those, those are the things that are important to not only the business side, but just, you know, the health of the sport in general. It's it's racing is going through a resurgency with John John Malone is doing over at F one. He's completely turned it around and built it around a fan experience. Mr. Penske is doing doing the same thing now with the Indy five hundred. You're having these new technologies coming through and as you look to the future, it's really important to not write off technologies and I'll give you an example from from racing world ferrari we're never going to make a hybrid well they're making a hybrid no we're never going to make an electric we're making never going to make an suv nope they're making all three and the ceo ferrari came out today on bloomberg said we're make, never making a self-driving car i look at the revenues 42 percent of the revenues made from licensing ferrari will license the brand at some point so it's very important as you look to the future not to not to write anything off and i like the approach that you're taking from an engineering perspective because you're willing to embrace all these technologies that will put a better product on the field for your sponsors, for your drivers, and most importantly, for the fans. Yeah, absolutely. I'm always driven by, I learned a lesson early, very early on, I mentioned before, my first job in racing was a, a IMSA GTS team way back in 1995. Won the championship, won the, the manufacturer's championship for Oldsmobile, and I, I, don't, I don't know, you would think that that program would continue, but it didn't. Uh, maybe they went to sponsor a golf tournament, <laughs> but again, it was it was the realization that sometimes success and, and the continuation of you know the funding don't necessarily have that that relationship. So anything that we can do to keep people engaged, to keep people uh, feel like they're getting their money's worth, I think that's that itself is going to not just help you know, the individual teams and sponsors, but the series as a whole. And it will allow you to continue to innovate. Yes, absolutely. And Tip, this has been a wonderful conversation. I've geeked out on, on the racing aspect. So thank you for, <laughs> for shedding all those great lights. And the, your Formula SAE story was awesome. I'll take the clubs if you ever found them in the woods one day. <laughs> and as we look to wrap up this insightful conversation, what would you like our listeners to take away with them today? Oh, so back in, uh, I was still in graduate school in Virginia, kind of trying to decide, you know, what, what do I want to do with my career? You know, I, I loved racing. I always have. So I, I actually thought, all right, I'm just going to go talk to someone and see how that, could I make a career out of this? And surprisingly, our engineering manager, uh, Julian Robertson, here at Chip Ganassi Racing, had just arrived, joined the team from Formula One, and I had managed to, you know, have five minutes of, of his time and just talk to him and say, you know, how do you do this? How do you get into this sport? And his advice was, you just have to be persistent. You, you have to let people know this is really what you want to do. And then once you get the opportunity, make the most of it, you know, get your foot in the door and then take advantage of every opportunity that, that comes your way. And, you know, we, we talked about the passion 
if you have a passion for racing, be persistent, but also be determined in preparing yourself for that, that, for that step into this environment, you know, prepare yourself with your studies, um, just general knowledge racing, you know, the basic fundamentals of, of how things work. You know, those are, those are all, when you finally get that chance, that's when, it, that's what you're going to rely on to be successful in the opportunities that are, as they're presented. And that's how you stand out in racing, you know, prepare and take advantage, you know, when things come your way. Racing is a passion. I'll repeat, racing is a passion <laughs> because today is tomorrow. Tomorrow is today and the future is, and has always been racing. Eric, thank you so much for coming on SAE tomorrow today. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to SAE tomorrow today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Be sure to join us next week as Carbon Revolution's co-founder discusses the company's carbon fiber wheels that are much lighter than aluminum equivalents and how they are improving steering, handling, and response. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.